Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and this is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount. On this show, we're getting to the bottom of what still holds women back from women who are beating the odds. What I have learned is any time that you have shame and guilt and secrets, it never ends well. Here to help me introduce this week's guest is my producer, Sari Soffer. So Jen, you've been wanting today's guest to come on for a while now. And I think now is a really important moment for us to all hear Megan Barry's story. So Megan was the former and first woman mayor of Nashville before a sex scandal led to her resignation in 2018, which I know you'll get into in the interview. But six months prior to that being revealed, Megan lost her only son to a drug overdose. And last week, the CDC actually released new data showing that in the first year of the pandemic, March 2020 to March 2021, reported drug overdose deaths hit a new high of more than 96,000 in that 12-month period. I mean, it was it's so tragic because mm-hmm. those numbers were crippling yeah. in previous years. And to see that it even went up last year is like this problem is not abating in any way. And Megan has taken it upon herself to be an advocate for those struggling with addiction and their and their loved ones. But when I think of Megan and what stands out most to me, what she advocates for, is how she pushes people to get past the shame that dictates so much of the response to this. She felt it around her son's addiction. Her son felt it around his addiction. And then, of course, there's the extramarital affair she has in office, which is something that she brought on herself. But those experiences, I think, allow her to offer some really rich and unique advice for all of us hiding behind something, right? Mm -hmm. We're all scared of something being revealed and could help us unlock something even more meaningful in ourselves. So I'm really excited to share Megan Berry with you all. Megan Berry, welcome to Just Something About Her. Thank you. Happy to be here. So we first became friends in 18, which was after you lost your son, Max, had passed, after you had resigned your post as mayor. But I want to go back to the time, the first time I met you, which was in 2015. And we came to Nashville on the Clinton campaign to do a Tennessee primary event, as I recall. Yes. And when I met you, I remember you seemed to have an easy confidence that a lot of women leaders aren't able to access often through no fault of their own, but just, I was like, wow, she's like a new generation. I'm wondering at the beginning, when you first became mayor of Nashville in 2015, 
What was the experience like for you, and particularly as it relates to being a, a woman, like if there were, if you felt like there was gender bias or, sure. or not in uh, dealing with voters, press, colleagues? <laughs> Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> well, I was I was really lucky because I did what a lot of people who I wish when they go into to politics would do. And that is I really wanted to go in because I wanted to make my community better. And I do think that women oftentimes take that approach. And it was a really hard fought race. There was really no expectation that I was going to win. So I think a lot of people were incredibly surprised. Because there were a lot of people in the primary or what? There were a lot of people in the primary, but then when it came head to head People are probably surprised to know that Nashville is a Democratic town. Yes, it is. It's <laughs> so, very blue. Uh, let, me, let me state that. It's actually a very, very blue. It's sort of Austin-y in that way. But this race was particularly nasty. Gender was absolutely involved. One of the really interesting ways that they came at me was by impugning my husband and using him as the shill to say, if she wins, she won't really be the mayor. Her husband, this uh, crazy Vanderbilt, you know, liberal ACLU national board member will be the one running our city. Because Bruce, we should explain, is an ethics professor, right? He is. Yeah, yeah. He's in the business school at Vanderbilt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, And he's also a prolific writer. So they went back and found columns that he had written. I think the one that was the most damaging was a piece that he had written about the Jesus industrial complex. (laughs) And as you can imagine in the South, (laughs) they did radio spots on it. Yeah. I mean, Bruce had never been an issue for me when I worked in corporate America. Nobody thought my husband was doing my job. Mm -hmm. But as I entered into this political and public sphere, it became evident that there was this belief that women really couldn't have their own minds. And so they would be controlled by their husbands. So when I won, it was great. And throughout my entire time, I was mayor. Sadly, I have way, way too many um, stories to to tell. You were the first woman to be the mayor of Nashville. I was the first. Yeah, I was the first. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was 2015. And then the next time you were on my radar screen was in July of 17 when you lost Max. And, you know, like hideous, tragic. And then... It's the winner of 2018, and I saw a tweet from you. This is like before you had to resign, but that had been unearthed that you had been having an affair with your security detail. Is that what we call them? What do we call them? Sure. And, and, and that's pretty common. Mayors across the United States are assigned security detail that come out of the police department to make sure that they're safe. And I will just say, like, as a woman mayor, yeah. this was all really new as well to the police department. They weren't exactly sure how much security I needed all the time. Oh. Because also, again, this idea that as a woman, there was one time right early in my mayor election that I was walking down Broadway and I was by myself and it was night and this person who was unhoused grabbed me and kissed me and it was kind of scary. And then one time when I was on Vanderbilt's campus, we were doing a, a speech for a group of women and these two men came barging in on campus and threatened us. And as the one guy said, I could drop you right here, implying that he had a gun. And so I think that there was just a lot more attention to saying, okay, what kind of level of security do we need? And not that a man shouldn't have the same. I just think that it was all new to everybody. So what I saw you had tweeted was 
God will forgive me, but the people of Nashville don't have to. In the weeks and months to come, I will work hard to earn your forgiveness and earn back your trust. And I was like, oh, no. You know, I just, after Max and now this, and then, of course, I've had a a disturbingly number of times where I've been sort of adjacent, I guess you would say, to these kinds of like sexual affairs in politics with both working for President Clinton and and John Edwards. And I was like, oh my God, what? It's a woman. Yeah, I, I did not, sadly, I did not pick a, a unique way or a very original way to flame out my political career. <laughs> it's the most common thing there is in politics. Yeah. But I was like, can a man survive this? Probably is a woman going to be able to? Well, first of all, let me just make it clear, because I do think, and there are no excuses here, I own everything I did, and what I did was absolutely wrong, and I absolutely deserved to be punished for it, and probably lose my job, I mean, and, and everything else. I'm not making excuses. I think that it is not a finite point to say that we were two middle-aged consenting adults. It, it still doesn't make it right. Workplace romances are never, ever, ever going to end well. And I knew that because I'd spent 20 years in corporate America as an ethics and compliance officer. Right. And I had always said to people, oh my gosh, don't ever do it. Right. And what did I do? And and I think what I wanted to do or what I thought I was going to do when, when I came out and, and, and said that we had, this person and I had made this horrible mistake I really did think that we were going to get through it. You did? I did. It came out in January, right? At the end of January. And then you resigned in March. In March. It came to light on a radio show, right? I, I think so. I mean, it's it's hard to know exactly. Oh, okay. I wasn't sure about that. How it actually ended up coming out. But it was clear that it was coming out. Okay. And so in the beginning, you know, I've been in these situations too, where you're like, we can weather this. And I'm not sure if it's like delusional. It is. <laughs> It's delusional. Self-protection. <laughs> yeah. You're like, we can do this. I mean, I think what I have learned over the, the course of this, but also with Max, is any time that you have shame and guilt and secrets, it never ends well. Right. So this this is disclosed. You own it. And then there's continued questions from the DA. So once we had disclosed... The person who I was engaged in the affair with resigned. And so we then thought that this is it. We're done. It's it's all good. What the district attorney, though, decided to do was to see if there had been any misuse of public funds. So he started an investigation. But at the end of the day, he believed that he had enough information to at least take me to court and, and charge me in a way with misuse of public funds. Because the guy was an employee of the city. Correct. Yes. He alleged that because we worked all the time, and we did, that Rob had billed for hours that he hadn't actually worked. And to be clear, Rob was the head of your security detail, and he is the man you had the affair with. Yes. And at the time, there wasn't any audit or anything that happened. I mean, that came a lot later after I'd left office. And there was an audit that did conclude that they, I think that they found maybe 10 hours that they couldn't actually account for mm -hmm. out of the 2000 that they looked at, which amounted to about $600. But during the, all of this, when this is happening, that, that was the allegation. 
And then the rest of it became, what kind of hell am I going to put the people who have been so loyal to me through? Because my lawyers were really clear. Everybody's going to get deposed. Everybody's going to have to get a lawyer. You can't pay for that. It'll go to trial in two years. And do you really want to spend all your money and the next two years of your life trying to fight something that you'll probably win? But at what cost? And I, and I think we decided the cost just, it wasn't worth it. And what was I going to do to put all these people through because I I was not innocent of misbehaving. Right. <laughs> so I still don't believe that I was a criminal, that I actually ever stole any any money. Right. But that didn't matter. You know, I just I I didn't want this to become also me trying to prove my quote innocence because I was guilty. I was guilty of having an affair. I would note that when Gavin Newsom was mayor of San Francisco, he had an affair with a staff person. He got reelected. He got reelected as governor twice. Yeah. San Francisco is not national. It's not. It's also a different time. I think, you know, 2003 was a different time for him. And maybe it would have turned out differently today. What I don't want to do is is try to say, well... It shouldn't have happened to me. Like right. what should have happened is Gavin Newsom should have been held responsible. <laughs> is there a particular point that you can remember when you were like, okay, this is it. I'm going to resign. Yeah. The weekend that the guy who I was having the affair with went in and did a federal proffer with the district attorney. I think you need to explain that. Basically, it's when you go in and you, it's like being a queen for the day. Like you can put everything you want down for what you've done. And, and you're basically, you get immunity, except for what you've agreed to to be prosecuted for. And that weekend, my lawyers came back and had met with the district attorney and, and basically said, hey, look, Rob is going to plead guilty. I don't know why or what his reasoning was. But they said at his time when he's going to plead guilty, one of two things is going to happen. You're going to plead guilty on the same day per the district attorney or the district attorney is going to have read into the record five pages of every time, date and place you ever had sex. And at that moment, I couldn't do that to my husband. And I said, we're done. Take a deal. I don't care. That wasn't what I could do to my husband. Yeah. Yeah. Who, by the way, was a huge trooper through all of this. You know, we've been married almost 30 years now. And at one point when I had to do the press conference, he said, look, I'll do anything for you. Absolutely. He said, just don't make me appear in a hostage video. (laughs) He said, you know, when the spouse has to stand next to the, the politician and have the saddest face on earth. And I said, don't worry, sweetie, I won't, I won't do that to you. So your plea deal for the charge of felony theft ended up meaning that you had to resign and pay $11,000 to the city meant as reimbursement for travel fees during the fair. Yeah. And then it's not too long after that that I see you back in Nashville. And I was like, oh, this woman is not going to hide. And I was so impressed by that because shame is such a powerful thing, especially if you're a woman in office who just had their biggest secret revealed. Tell us what gave you that courage to not just disappear. So I think our natural reaction when we are embarrassed and and ashamed is to hide. And and that was absolutely what I thought of first. And and what I did is get on a plane and, and leave town. So I went to Montana 
And I honestly thought, I don't know how long I'm staying here. My sister lives there. And I was like, eh. And, yeah. and so I, my sister and I were out on a Friday night and we were sitting in this kind of dive in this place called Manhattan, Montana. And there's the bartender. And I said, hey, you know, what's your name? And she said, I'm Becky. And I said, oh, great. I said, hey, I'm Megan. And she looked at me and she said, I know, darling, you're just one step ahead of the law, aren't you? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I was like, What? She said, we get CNN. And I I was like, okay. And that was the moment I thought, you know what? I'm never going to be able to outrun this. Right. If I'm in Manhattan, Montana, it's not going to matter. I need to go home. So I got back on a plane and came back. And and so I kind of went off social media for a while. And when I came back on social media, I can remember one person reaching out and saying, what do you, you know, what do you think you're going to do? Tweet your way out of this? Uh Uh-huh. And I thought, you know, well, I, I, I guess that's a valid point, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not going to try to tweet my way out of this, but I'm also not going to stop living. Because what I hoped I could do was show the folks who had believed in me and also who hadn't that you can make mistakes and you can, you can come back from them because there has to be redemption in the world. There doesn't have to be forgiveness. You know, there are lots of people who will probably never forgive me for what I did, and that's okay. But there has to be an opportunity for redemption. And I think that you can't be redeemed if you aren't actually out there. You can't do it from your couch. Right. And and I can't do that. I have to just keep moving. And that momentum also was a way to not have to deal quite yet with Max and my grief. And after the break, we'll talk more about Megan's nonlinear journey through grief and what she was able to learn through her son Max's life and death. That's after the break with former mayor of Nashville, Megan Barry, on Just Something About Her. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And we're back to Just Something About Her with Megan Barry, former mayor of Nashville and mother to her only son, Max, who died of a drug overdose in 2017 at age 22. Megan... Max's death was just six months before you resigned as mayor after having admitted to an affair with your security detail. And it's interesting, you said before the break that you were able to deal with the shame around the affair partly because you had dealt with shame in losing Max. What did you mean by that? Sure. So so Max died in 2017 of an overdose and Max had struggled with substance use disorder. And I think because we didn't publicly talk about it, 
during his life. We never got the opportunity to potentially tell our stories in ways that might have helped other people and also helped Max. We didn't understand the disease and because of our blind spots, I don't know if Max would still be here, but there might've been a different outcome. I mean, I know that you feel like in high school where he started having problems or... Well, he was a casual pot smoker in high school mm-hmm. and and then went on to college. And when he got to college, his junior year of college, Max, like a lot of college students, had anxiety. And so he was prescribed Xanax. And Xanax in the hands of children who are barely adults uh, becomes addictive very quickly. And Max was addicted really quickly. How quickly do you think? Because it's important for people to know. Oh, six to eight weeks. And it was horrible. So I'm the mayor at this moment in time. I get him home. I take him to the ER. Where is he going to school? He was going to... He's at the University of Puget Sound out in Washington State. Right. So you're not actually able to see him day to day. No. Mm -mm. He comes home and he seems like a different person or what? No, he's he's so high. Like he can't even function. So I take him to the emergency room. That's when I really understood the, the depths of Max's shame on this. And so... We go back, the ER doctor has him in a room, Max is furious with me, and we come out and the ER doctor says, hey, look, I can't tell you anything. I can't tell you what he's on. I can't tell you what's going to happen because Max won't sign the form, which would allow me to have that conversation. Now, if that doctor had said to Max in his room, hey, look, you have cancer, Max would have signed that form and said, get my mom in here right now. Let's find the best places to go, the best treatment options. But Max was ashamed. He was ashamed that he was struggling and he couldn't even tell me, his mom, by signing a piece of paper. And so I left him at the ER. The doctor said, you know, come back tomorrow morning. You're going to have to come get him. And then you're going to have to have a plan. And I'm like, a plan? A plan for what? And so, you know, I went home that night. And again, I have access to resources at this moment in my life. And I call nobody, not one person. I get on the internet and I try to figure out what are we going to do? Like, where's he going? So that really hit home for me. It hit home for you that you're the mayor of Nashville. You're in this position of power and access and you yourself are too ashamed to yeah I'm not calling anybody I'm not I mean my god the mayor's son can't be an addict like that's that's not good and so my own shame and Max's shame too by not even being able to tell me what he needed just breaks my heart and it's a heart that is broken for all those families out there who are absolutely going through this it never occurred to me until now like, that's what the refusal to be ashamed about. It's not about you. It's about Max. Yeah, right. And don't we all deserve to be saved? And, and shame shouldn't get in the way. I mean, you know, the sad state of the world at the moment is that our overdose deaths in 2021 have far exceeded the numbers. The year Max died in 2017, and they are only, only going up. So you got him into rehab that summer? That was the yeah. summer of... That was 2016. After that ER moment, the next day, I was able to find a rehab bed for him. He did go to rehab. You know, and by the way, my gosh, we had insurance that would pay for it. So we were lucky. And Max was willing to go. And when he's finished after his 30 days, he goes back to school and finishes his senior year at college. And Bruce talked to him every single day because we were convinced that we would hear something in his voice if there was something wrong. 
here we had this beautiful child. He was so beautiful, by the way. <laughs> he I was say. so sweet. He was this wonderful kid. He didn't know where he wanted to go, but he would walk into a room and by the end of it, everybody wanted to go with him wherever that was. And so, you know, here Max was on this journey that was complicated and complex, but mm -hmm. we really didn't understand the disease until way past his death. You know, we had gone to rehab, he was out of rehab, and Bruce and I both were like, check that box, right? Mm -hmm. We've dealt with this, we're done. Right. And then it's June and he's graduated and he's making his way back to Nashville and he stops in Denver. Colorado and he's hanging out with friends and it's almost to the year that he's gotten out of rehab and Max and I had talked on and off during the day and and, and I am so grateful that my very last text to him and him to me was I love you Max is hanging out with friends and they decide to go get something to eat and they were probably gone about 20 or 30 minutes because Max didn't go with him and when they got back he was having a seizure but what they didn't realize because these were 20 something year old boys was that he was overdosing. They threw water on him and they tried to revive him. And finally somebody did call 911. But by the time 911 got there, you know, he was, he was dead. And I know that you and I have talked about this and I've mentioned this, but that was a night my husband and I were trying to actually make some connection back to each other. And so I had promised him that I would go out to dinner, I would turn off my phone to silent, I would not get involved in constituent conversations or selfies or all of that stuff that had become our life. Yeah. And I turned off the phone and I missed a call from Max. He called me probably about 30 minutes before he overdosed and I got home about 9.50 that night and saw I'd missed the phone call and texted him back and just said, hey, you know, do you need me? And that's the moment the paramedics were there basically calling it. And, you know, they'd never even transported him. He died on the back porch. And after I left office and uh, I, went, I went out to Denver because it was really important to me to thank those first responders right. for holding my son's hand yeah. as he left this world. And also to tell him a little bit about Max, because, um, you know, it, they knew him in death. And so what we have tried to do is not focus exclusively on Max's death, but also to think about his life. So uh, one of the things that we did after he passed was to create this fund through one of the local organizations here in town where it provides grants for kids to go travel. And by that, you know, I'm talking about kids who wouldn't have an opportunity to travel because what we found, and I know that Max appreciated it for Max, it was the journey. It wasn't about the destination and so many kids don't get that chance. So we've, we've done a lot of that. COVID has made it a little constrained, but once it opens back up, um, that will happen. And, and just telling Max's story as a way to talk about his life and his death and his struggles to also not leave it so that people don't have action items they can do. And, and like the people who are listening, you can do something right now about this in your life that it's pretty easy. And the first thing is go to your medicine cabinet. Max had prescription drugs in his system when he died, and he did not have a prescription for any of those. So he got those prescription drugs from somewhere. And the likelihood is that he got it from somebody's medicine cabinet or somebody else got it from somebody's medicine cabinet. So go take a look at your own medicine cabinet. If you're using those drugs, great, lock them up. If you're not, get rid of them. 
CVS, Walgreens, there's all kinds of take back places in Nashville. You can take them to the local police department, get rid of them. And the second thing you can do is you can carry Narcan. And in most states, that is legal. Is oh, here it have, is. Yeah, here it is. So it's a nasal spray. You basically just take it, put it up somebody's nose and spray it and you buy them time. I carry one in my purse. This is something that should be like a defibrillator. Yeah. It should just be somewhere. And I get frustrated with folks who are like, well, why would you do that? That just encourages people to, you know, overdose. And, you know, my response is the defibrillator response, which is if somebody's having a heart attack, you're not judging them for having a cheeseburger, for goodness sake, you know, like give them their life-saving care and then judge them later, (laughs) you know? Right. So that's two things you can do. Be accountable for where your own medications are and carry Narcan. Those are great action items. Thank you. All right, time for one last quick break, and we'll be back with Megan Barry on Just Something About Her. Welcome back to Just Something About Her. We have my friend Megan Barry here. She was the first woman to become mayor of Nashville. And we are just talking about how she tragically lost her son to a drug overdose while in office on a night she turned off her phone during dinner with her husband. I know you had told me before about how you had missed a call from X that night. And I was just like wrenching. You did a great TED talk and you, you share that publicly and you share the details of the night. Why do you think it's important to share that? You could have easily kept that private. No one needed to know that. Because it also goes partly to what we all feel from loss, which is, was there one more thing I could have done? Was there something else that I could have made a difference? And, you know, that phone call haunted me for a really long time. And I met a woman who had lost her fiance to an overdose. And she told me, and and this really helped me, she said, you know, that night he died, he called me and I talked to him and I said, well, what did he say? And she said, he said, it's all good. I'm fine. I've got this. And he died anyway. And I think in my mind, that is exactly how our conversation would have gone. My son would have said, I'm fine. I've got this. It's all good. And the outcome wouldn't have changed. And I think I needed to hear that and just know that I, I, I wasn't going to change that trajectory. I think the call was the symbol for so many decisions that we made throughout Max's life. And, and this idea of going back and re-examining, the phone call just happened to be the one that was closest to the event to make you think, could this have been different? But, you know, what if we had lived somewhere else, had a different dog, if the wind had blown a different way. I mean, there's all these ways that you can absolutely torture yourself on the decisions that you made. And that phone call was my torture for a really long time until I spoke to that woman. What I also hope to, you know, with with our conversation and also the conversations I have all over, because I go and talk about this stuff, is that when you have a family that's in crisis, and my family was in crisis, we had a child who was sick, you end up making bad decisions. Being able to find ways to support families that are in crisis with children who are sick, 
whether it's from cancer or substance use disorder or whatever, these are really uh, important ways that we help strengthen the people around us when things are happening. I mean, you know, when people are sick, people make bad decisions and it doesn't excuse those decisions, but it also means that maybe you have to find a little more grace. It wasn't until I left office that I actually finally had time to grieve. And I think that when people who are going through grief, you know this, it's not linear. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I ran into this and while I was still in office, what, we're still talking about this? What, like, haven't you moved on? And part of me felt like, yeah, I need to get over it because I need to keep doing and I need to keep working. And so leaving office was this really unexpected gift (laughs) of being able to finally grieve for Max and to actually process all of those mistakes and shame and come out or at least through a lot of it that I hope has made me more empathetic, more kind, and more willing to to recognize the good and the grace and the pain that everybody carries. What can you tell people about getting through a time of that seems hopeless? Sure. I had an amazing husband and an amazing family and amazing friends. But I will also tell you that one of the one things that was really powerful were all of the outpouring of letters from strangers. Actually, at one point, after I cleaned out my mayor's office and we had all this stuff at the house, we went through and sorted, you know, these boxes and boxes of letters. And I I divided them into sin, grief, and crazy. (laughs) And I will tell you the sin ones were beautiful. I mean, they came from folks who oftentimes it was a confessional. They wanted to tell me about their sins. And so I got to hear a lot of stuff. Oh, like I too did. Oh, okay. I too have strayed. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, that's interesting. Wow. Yeah. Wanting to share with me. You know, I, I still remember. It's dangerous. The- they wrote it. Wrote it down. They did. They are such a great example of humanity. You know, and the grief letters were stories that people wanted to share with me about the people that they had lost in their lives. And then the crazy ones, well, we won't even go into those. (laughs) I know there was this one woman that wrote you twice a week, every week, right? Debbie from Ohio. Yeah, Debbie. So, So she started writing to us right after Max died. And she would send us these beautiful cards that, you know, Hallmark cards that were, you know, expensive cards. And we would get one about every two days or three days. And we didn't know Debbie from Ohio and had never met her. And the only thing she ever signed in the card was lovingly Debbie. And right before Max's one year anniversary, we got our last card from her. And it said, you know, I hope that these cards have helped over the past year. This is my last one. And of course, I had to know who Debbie was. (laughs) So I told my husband, you know, I'm renting a car and I'm driving to Ohio. (laughs) And I met Debbie and Debbie has this whole like approach. She picks like 10 to 20 families a year, not necessarily people who are profile like me. And she sends them cards and she just calls it after the casserole. This idea that after that last casserole is gone from the grief stricken home, people still need that support. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. I mean, Bruce and I were already going through some, you know, some really uh, just extreme times in our lives. And these Debbie cards would come and every 
week, we'd be like, okay, there's another Debbie card. And we would pour ourselves a glass of wine and it would just make us have a conversation. And Bruce and I, even though we shared parenting of Max, did not share the same kind of grief process. And so Debbie definitely put us on a trajectory to at least for that moment, have a connection with how we were grieving with each other. And that was what I've learned through so much of this, which is we all can do that in little and big ways. You know, Debbie's a big way, but there are lots of little ways every day. And I think it's good for people to know that even if you're a stranger or you are maybe not the closest friend, you can play a helpful role by saying, how are you doing? How are you doing about Max? Or, you know, just saying the child's name. I know this is a very big thing with Elizabeth Edwards, like when she lost her son, Wade, it's like, don't worry, you know, about bringing up Wade because you're worried I'm going to be sad. I have not forgotten that my son died. So you're not reminding me of something terrible. It is always on my mind. Say his name. Right. Just the the couple of times that you've said Max's name out loud, I smile, right? I mean, you this do. Is my you do. Yes, this is my beautiful child whose name is coming off of your lips that makes me remember him for all of his wonderfulness and flaws and everything else. And, and you know, that really struck me. It's been about three, two or three years ago, but John Prine was a really special friend of Max's, and uh, which is amazing. Yeah, which like says so much about Max, so, like that John Prine chose to befriend him. That's pretty cool. So Max and Tommy, who is John's son, uh, were good friends. And after Max died, John recorded his last album called "The Tree of Forgiveness." And he dedicated the album to Max, and he dedicated one song in particular. And that one song in particular, called Summer's End, is about the opioid crisis. Come on home. Come on home. No, you don't have to be alone. And when John was accepting the award at the Americana Awards for best album for this amazing thing that he had done, he dedicated it to Max. And he said Max's name out loud. And and I can remember Bruce and I were in the audience and, and hearing that. And I thought, you know, what a beautiful gift he just gave us. And so I just think that that's something else that we can do. I mean, everybody dies. We are so awkward about death in America. We don't know how to talk about it. And we don't know how to embrace oftentimes friends and loved ones who have, who have experienced death. But it's a common human experience. And, and I think we all just need to, to support each other. So I just want to end by bringing this full circle. You've had your worst day. You've lived through your most shameful secrets coming to light. Is there liberation in that? Do you like yourself more after having made it through the other side? So I think I think absolutely it is really empowering to have had your worst day because there's really nothing that could happen now that I wouldn't be able to deal with. I don't want bad things to happen because I don't want to deal with them, but I know I have the strength to do it. <laughs> and I think that was also part of the process with this affair. That was a mistake. It wasn't a tragedy. I'd already seen what a tragedy looked like, and that was Max's death. And I think that gave me the perspective of being able to say, okay, I, I, I can get through this. This isn't a tragedy. Nobody died here, except my, maybe my political career. <laughs> but I, I just think that 
there's so much, I mean, I, I want to do a lot of things. And right. right now I spend a lot of my time talking to groups about shame, guilt, and substance use disorder. And I will put this out to your podcast folks. It's like, if you guys ever want me to show up and talk about that, please ask. You don't have to pay me. I just will come. Cause like, this is such an important topic to talk about and that's how I fill my life. And I've also, you know, COVID allowed me to take some classes on how to write a memoir. Who knows what, if it'll ever see the light of day, but it was really great. You know, lots of other people got to tell my story while all this was going on. And I'd like to tell my story so that maybe other people can benefit from my mistakes. Like, you know, the one thing my husband never, he's never spoken publicly about this ever. The only thing he did is the day I resigned, he sent out one tweet about this. And it was a Groucho Marx quote, which is so appropriate, that says, learn from the mistakes of others. You can't live long enough to make them all yourself. So let me be a cautionary tale. <laughs> As if the world's not filled with enough of them, but still. Right, sadly. This is really been something. Thank you so much. You're awesome. Thank you for asking such incredible questions and just doing this podcast. Sarah, are you there? I'm here. It was a real eye-opener to me. I heard her talk about Max's shame, which is something she'd never talked yeah. about before. I was like, that's what this is about. Mm -hmm. It seemed to me with like every fiber of her being that she had in her, she was like, I have to keep going. Someone did an op-ed in the Nashville scene, this woman, um, Amanda Haggard, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but one of the lines she had really struck me. It's, she said, people who make mistakes, women especially, are often expected to hide in a hole forever after. That expectation is harmful and not just to you, Megan. Yeah, and it's like a lot of times women are shamed unfairly, right? They're getting caught in some kind of power dynamic between men. Like me. Right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> when uh, Monica Lewinsky was my intern. And I felt somehow I had done something wrong and also I had done wrong by Monica somehow. Right? Mm -hmm. And also had done wrong by Hillary somehow. Right, yeah. But, you know, in Megan's case, you know, this is something she's ashamed of, right? right? She did the wrong thing here. She even says that it was right that she resigned, that that was the right thing to do. And then you have to decide what you do after. And she also wanted to point out that families going through illness or, you know, any sort of difficult situation often make mistakes. Yeah, what she has told me before is that her situation, she had an affair while Max and her husband and she were dealing with Max's addiction. Like, that's not uncommon to happen in a family. Right, because it happened a few years before Max passed, but yes. it was still while they were dealing with his illness, his substance use disorder. But I think it's actually very helpful for people. Like, most people aren't going to face this, like, double whammy that she did. But we're all going to have our worst day. We're all going to have a, a thing that you feel like you have lost everything. And her example is you just keep going and realize what a crippling, corrosive response that shame is that it shouldn't stop you. Great lesson. Thank you, Megan. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount. Thank you to Megan Berry for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcast app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. D. Scott Carroll and Logan Romju engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer. And Sari Soffer is our producer. 